Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative this beautiful Thursday morning. You know, we have all kinds of pandemics going on right now. We have climate change and racism and COVID-19. We have the economic crisis. And then we also have what I call the, the worst of them, the stupidity. Folks just going around doing crazy things and saying even worse things. But today we have... Ms. Nakishka Iyengar, who's the founder and CEO of the Guild in Atlanta, Georgia. Good morning, Nakishka. Good morning. And you are doing great things down there in Atlanta, uh, which <laughs> uh, hopefully will help with all of these pandemics we're dealing with today. Tell me, what is the Guild? Yeah, so the Guild is a community wealth building organization based here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and we're focused on closing the racial wealth gap through real estate, entrepreneurship programs, and access to capital for historically marginalized communities. Um, and yeah, to your point, we are we are trying to sort of take a systems approach to all of these different pandemics that are simultaneously hitting our people. So that wealth gap, what what is that wealth gap you're talking about? Yeah, so we're when we talk about the wealth gap, we're talking about the racial wealth gap. And um, in Atlanta, um, the median wealth for a white family is of $81,700. Um, and the same median wealth for a black household, black family, is only $3,500. So it's pretty staggering. And you can see sort of similar patterns Um at a national level. Um, and so when we're talking about closing the racial wealth gap, we're talking about repairing um, inequities that have that have happened across the board um, and specifically around um, real estate and entrepreneurship. You know, those have been the two main wealth building tools um, that uh, white communities have used to use uh, to build wealth, but the same sort of net benefits have not been felt by Black communities, Latinx communities, or indigenous communities. So we're really focused on sort of repairing some of those historic harms and and creating a new um, economy at a local level. That's staggering. I mean, um, white families have an average wealth of 81,700 in the Atlanta area versus blacks of 3,500. That means that whites have 23,000 times more wealth than blacks. Yeah. That's yeah. awful. I mean, because the, the national was 171,000 for a family, a white family versus 71,000 for a black family. And so that's 10 times worse. So it's, yeah. So you're twice as bad in Atlanta than it is in the nation. That's true. Yeah. And it's ironic because, you know, Atlanta is known as sort of the black Mecca, right? Um, that's the, that's the myth of Atlanta. 
Um, but you know, the reality is that the, the wealth gap and the inequity is just continuing to grow. So um, this is very much um, has been an urgent crisis and now more so with COVID-19 because what we know about this pandemic is it's just sort of exacerbating all of the other inequities that have existed prior to this. And so we're seeing things like mass evictions happen. Um, and despite sort of any measures that cities are trying to put in place, we're, we're seeing that continue to skyrocket and it's only going to get worse. So, and, you know, I think Georgia right now is number one, number two, maybe in um, sort of new COVID-19 cases. So, again, we're, we're in this, this pandemic is sort of here for, for a while. And we're really focused on sort of, like I said, repairing some of the inequities that had previously existed, but with a renewed sense of urgency given this pandemic. Wow, this is ugly. We get this real quick, real ugly. The, the picture of black families having a wealth of $3,500. And just real quickly, that wealth is the difference between what you own, what you own in terms of houses and cars and stocks and bonds, paintings, what you own versus what you owe in terms of mortgages and credit and credit cards and all of those things. That difference between what black families own versus what they owe is $3,500. I didn't have any idea it was that bad. Okay. All right. I got it. Oh, boy. You wake me up real quick here early in the morning. Okay. And it's also interesting that white's wealth is 81700 which is about half of the wealth of whites in the nation. But black wealth in Atlanta is, I don't know, 20 times worse than the nation. That's a, it's, yeah, and you know... One of the things I think in Atlanta, there's a lot of conversation around the in income inequality. But to your point, I think folks aren't focusing on wealth as much. But yeah, it is what you what you owe versus what you own. Um, and so when we talk about some of the systemic racism, it's not just about black communities sort of locked out of wealth building opportunities. It's also the fact that black communities have been exploited through various financial systems. Right. Like we know. For example, redlining, we know that they were locked out of home ownership. Um, but then we, we also know that, you know, predatory loans and, and those types of financial institutions and, and systems are very, very prevalent for a reason in black communities. So so it's, it's been both extractive, exploitative and, you know, just non-inclusive overall. And I think when we talk about um, the wealth gap, we, we, we really have to get, get focused on, on all of these sort of different forces working together. Okay, well, okay. This this predatory loans, whether it was what happened in 07, 08, that, that took away these predatory loans that you have this dream. I have my house with the white picket fence, two kids, a dog, and two-car garage. This, this ideal. So everybody wants this idea, the American dream, and go out and get a loan that has these terrible interest rates, help you to get into it, but almost guaranteed that you're going to foreclose. And then what happens when you foreclose? Those same people that made a loan go pick up that mortgage, and then they do it all over again. You say extractive and exploratory. Yes. Yeah. Sell the dream, then sell the house where you cannot afford it, or sell the car, sell the... Okay. So... What's your solution to all of this? 
Yeah, um, you know, these are these are obviously very deep seated problems that have that have existed for hundreds of years, and it's going to take a lot to sort of unwind and unravel. But all of this, but I think one really effective way um, to do some of that and to do that now is to democratize ownership and governance of assets broadly um, as soon as possible. So when I say assets, I'm talking about both businesses and real estate um, and democratize ownership and governance of both so that wealth sort of is distributed more equitably and built at the community level and not necessarily at the individual level. Um, Because that's part of the, you know, the selling of the dream that you, you referenced is um, it, it's a very individualistic and, and just sort of out of touch with reality. Like, oh, you know, the, it's just it's just not true. Like, um, and so our focus at the Guild is, is democratizing that ownership of, of businesses and of real estate. So on the um, entrepreneurship side, we do um, accelerator but, 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 programs. Hold, and- hold, hold a minute. I'm sorry, Nikishka. But I need to make sure that I understand and the, and the audience understands what do you mean by democratize? democratize assets. What does that mean? Uh, when I say that, I'm talking about putting ownership in the hands of more people rather than just the, sort of the people at the top, right? When you when you think of traditional businesses, um, ownership, whether, you know, if it's a public business, the ownership lies in the hands of sort of the, the shareholders. Um, if they're private um, businesses, ownership lies in the hands of whoever, like whether it's the investors or sort of the the C-suite might have a stake in it, but not necessarily all of the employees and workers. And so when I say democratize ownership of assets, when it comes to businesses, I'm talking about employee ownership. And when I'm talking about real estate, I'm talking about, again, moving away from this idea that investors and landlords are, are the ones that should own sort of real estate and putting ownership in the hands of, of tenants and the broader community overall. Okay, so here's what I hear you say. Um, you want to put the ownership in the hands of individuals. Right now, yeah. if a business is owned, if it's public traded, on, on uh, then it's owned by the shareholders who are the capitalists. They mm-hmm. are the elite. They are the people that have money. If real estate a particular multifamily real estate or commercial real estate is normally owned by some shareholders, somebody that owns it, not the people that maybe live in it or work in it. And so you want to put this ownership in the hands of the people that do the work or the people that live in the houses and so forth. Exactly. That's exactly. It. There's that's no, it. that's it. There's no reason why benefits should only accrue to the capital holders. Um, stewards of these assets, whether they're workers or tenants or um, just the community overall, very much so um, should have those same ownership and governance rights. And, and that that will bring us one step closer to a more equitable economy, I think. Okay. So I guess the question becomes, how do you get ownership in the hands of everyday folk? And what are sort of the pressures are the forces that keep that from happening? Because it sounds like a great idea, but what ha- why, ha- why has it not happened already? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, I mean, I think there's just so many layers to it. 
one, you know, that our existing financial system and existing policies, we don't really have sort of broad policies or broad financial incentives to make this happen. And so capitalism does what it does best <laughs> in, in the absence of that. And so I think that's one of the, the biggest reasons right now. And that's actually one of the hurdles that, you know, we're dealing with as we as we um, try to seed and grow these models is the, the quote unquote market as it stands. It's expensive to try to, to, to get the capital to do these kinds of models in a way that helps to close the racial wealth gap. And so we've really been looking to sort of uh, like local governments here locally, as well as philanthropy to help seed some of the, the capital that can close this gap and get the market to where it needs to be, to where private capital can, can then come in and, and add on to it. But we really need catalytic capital, philanthropic capital, low-cost capital to come in and fill this gap. And so with, that's what we're focused on right now with the real estate. And we we're actually on... Mm-hmm. So I get that capitalism does what it does best. Capitalism does what it does best. So... The question becomes, what is that that capitalism does that it does best? And we're going to take our first break here, and I'd like to come back and and, and see if we can deal with that. And you said it's expensive to get the capital, uh, and how you can you get philanthropic capital or low-cost capital from local governments or from people that have it out there. So we'll take our first break. We'll be right back. Everybody out there, please don't touch that down. News Talk Station. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. WOL makes a great partner because information is power. But a guy named Papa Sin from Senegal said the first week we were on the show seven years ago, seven years this October, he said it's not information where you get the power. It's taking that information and put it into action. It's not until you put it into action that you get the power. So the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program so we can give you the information so that you may do what Nakishka is doing, and that's get into action, and that's where you will get the power. Nakishka, uh, you mentioned systemic racism, that racism is in our system. You talked about the WEF gap of blacks and whites in Atlanta. It turns out that whites in Atlanta's wealth is about half of the whites of the nation, but blacks' wealth in Atlanta is about 19 times less than what's the nation for blacks. And blacks' wealth in Atlanta is 23 times less than whites in Atlanta. I mean, it's terrible where blacks are in terms of wealth, what they own versus what they owe. And you say that's systemic because uh, capitalism does what it does best. And in capitalism in Atlanta, in black community, they're predatory. They take money out, they extract, and then they won't let people in. They won't let folks in by redlining and doing other things that make it hard to get a business started or own real estate. So what is it that capitalism does what it does best? What is it that capitalism does best? That's the statement you said, and I like that statement. So please tell me what that is. (laughs) Yeah, what I mean by that is, 
capitalism is really good about concentrating wealth and power in the hands of capital holders, right? Like that is that is what the system is designed for. And the way it does that is in conjunction, or I guess part of what it does is it works in conjunction with other systems of oppression. So whether it's white supremacy or the patriarchy or U.S. imperialism, I mean, you name it, um, capitalism tends to reinforce some of those systems of oppression, again, with the, with the goal of concentrating power and wealth um, in the hands of capital holders. Now, thanks to white supremacy and the patriarchy, um, that ends up being mostly white men, um, also white women now. But um, and so, so, so that's that's what you have at the end of the day: this reinforcement um, and and working in tandem um, with different systems of oppression. Capitalism is not just an economic system that works in isolation. And I think that's the I, that's the message, sort of broadly, that has um, uh, has come to me over you know doing this work for the last ten years. Well, Nikishka, you only look like you're about 16, so you started when you were six. You've been doing it for 10 years. <laughs> I'm definitely not 16. <laughs> well, I, whatever age you are, I'm impressed that you have this knowledge at such a much younger age than when I got it. So I'm just totally in awe of where you are and what you're doing. So you're trying to get money to help this with this racial gap in Atlanta, in and around Atlanta by creating businesses, entrepreneurs, and through real estate, getting real estate in the hands of everyday folk, everyday business, everyday people, which is contrary to capitalism. It's the opposite of capitalism. If its main goal is to concentrate wealth in the people that already have wealth, wealth and power, uh, in the hands of folks that already have money, um, and they do that in all kinds of different ways. It's interesting. But also it's just holding people down and taking from taking from the poor what little they have. That's what I get. Taking from everybody and anybody. Not just making money, but also taking this predatory piece that you talk about. Okay. So how did you come about this in such a young age? How did you how did you get to this kind of philosophy, this knowledge? For me, I, I should say also, I'm, I'm 30 now, so I don't know that I'm that young. But, um, but well, I'm se- I'm 73. You young girl, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> um, uh, for me, I think it. You know, I so I grew up in in India. I grew up in Mumbai in India, and Mumbai, you know, Mumbai in India. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> and. That's sort of like the the very stark, you know, de- the developing country stark contrast of, of poverty that, you know, folks by at this point have have seen in in movies and on TV, right? So, so growing up in an environment like that, and then I, after that, I moved to Singapore and then the U.S. for college, and I think just sort of seeing inequality in in three different lights in three different countries, but understanding that. And, and for me, it wasn't like, you know, a one moment or anything. It was a sort of slow unraveling over time, understanding that while poverty might look a little different in each of these countries, our economic system works the way it does by design. And it works, like I said, the way it does to to reinforce some of these, these hierarchies and, and oppressive systems um, that work in tandem with it. Um, and so I... 
pretty much right out of college. It went, while I was in college, I mean, I was a I was a student organizer, um, you know, organizing on campus for everything from, you know, from climate action to solidarity with Palestine to, you know, you name it, just sort of very invested in student organizing movements. And then from there, my background, my undergrad was in finance and economics. And it was at a time of 2007, 2008, when I was a finance major. And so sort of mm-hmm. seeing the, the global meltdown, that was entirely preventable. That was entirely, you know, the folks that were responsible for, again, looked like white men um, that had been given positions of power. They were um, on Wall Street that they never should have really had. And we had entirely, you know, gambled away the lives of of people, not just in this country, but across the world, because, um, of course, our our economies are tight. And so having sort of that that wake up moment as as a finance major and then watching the entire global financial system collapse was obviously very interesting as a student experience. And then, um, yeah, graduating from there um, and I, I chose to work in. Um, the social enterprise world pretty broadly um, worked with Fortune 500 companies on their social impact and, and climate strategy um, and grew frustrated um, a few years in because change wasn't happening um, fast enough. Fast enough, it yep. Right. And it wasn't happening at that pace that it, that these problems demanded. And it, it really felt like it was – while, you know, whatever change was happening was meant to still sort of maintain the status quo, right, and just do some of these things on the side. That's what it felt like with a lot of these companies. Um, it wasn't woven into their day-to-day, their, their, business, their business practices at a very, like, fundamental level. And so, yeah, I mean, the status quo we know is just untenable. Climate change has gotten worse every year. Wealth gaps across the across the world has grown every year. Yeah, we're seeing some of the the, the pandemics that you talked about intersecting and and reinforcing each other. So in India, I went to India one time in the I don't know mid seventies. I went to Pune, and we went through Mumbai, flew into Mumbai, and then down to mm-hmm. Pune. And uh, we were visiting Kalarskar Cummins Cummins Engine Company, who I worked for. In Kerlaskar, the family was the was the uh, partner in India manufacturing, and I remember one of the senior reps. I, this is my first job out of MBA program. Asked the uh, wife of the Kerlaskar family, "How were the people going to vote? Who was going to win the election that was going on at the time?" And she said she didn't know. She said, "Look at how we lived. She lived in a compound, a gated community. It was I don't know." 500 people to live in that compound or something. It was huge with animals and everything walking around and guards. She said, we do not know what's happening with the people out there. And I thought that was so um, wise. And so uh, did you grow up in that kind of compound, wealthy, or did you grow Mm -hmm. out on the outside, which were poor folk? How did you grow up in, in Mumbai? Yeah. And I grew up definitely not, definitely not wealthy. Um, I grew up, pretty middle class. Growing up, it was, you know, six of us in our family, including my grandparents, in a pretty small two-bedroom apartment. So definitely not in a a big compound like that. But that's the the thing, right? Like, the the inequity that exists is so stark. Like, I bet after, you know, walking out of that compound, there were probably slums 
a few feet away because that's 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 all around it all four corners all four sides it was slums yeah it was yeah it was yeah stock yeah got it yeah same thing in nigeria when i went there sierra leone yeah. Singapore, I visited Singapore. Uh, Bangkok, Thailand was probably the no uh, Haiti was perhaps the worst. So you see this, uh, and and I've been able to see it because of how I've traveled. You know, I'd be with the the wealthy and the business people, and also with the poor. With the and more often it is blacks versus the whites. Whatever that white looked like, it could be Lebanon white or it could be uh, European mm-hmm. white. So. Yeah, I get it. We have to take our second break. This is fascinating conversation with you. Uh, you are teaching me, and I love that. I love to learn. <laughs> Hopefully other people out there are getting it. And when we come back, I want to talk more about the Guild and what you're doing, some of the different projects that you have now that you work that you have going now and those that you're looking to, to work on in the future. So everybody out there, please don't touch that dial. We'll be right back to talk to Nakishka. back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, we have a great conversation going. I'm learning with Nakisha Yingar from the founder of the Guild in Atlanta, Georgia. This program is brought to you by the National uh, Co-op Bank. NCB has been our sponsor now for the six years that we have been on, on the uh, seven years we've been on air. Their mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So as Nikishka and her group are looking at forming the Guild and all of the projects in the Guild, maybe NCB might end up being a partner to lend them some money and to help them move forward. Nikishka, I said I want to come back and talk to you about some of the projects you have going right now and those that you're looking at starting. So what what project do you have in terms of uh, businesses? You said you want to do it with entrepreneurship and real estate. So mm-hmm. What do you have going now? Yeah, so we have um, on the real estate side, we've got a flagship um, co-living program where we bring together um, uh, small business owners, entrepreneurs, artists, community organizers, um, and sort of nonprofit leaders in a live-work environment. Um, so they live together, and we have some programming to support their ventures. Um, we also have a oh, um, before you before you move on. Um, how big is that? How many people? How many businesses? Uh, how many square feet is the living space? Do you own it? Those things. Yeah, yeah. So that's it's all a great question because we don't we don't currently own that building, and and that ties into um, what the next project is about. And I'll tell you in a second. But we started out with five units, grew to 12 units, and now, and so the building that we're, we're in right now is on Auburn Avenue. Um, that has seven units. Upstairs is like the co-living unit. Downstairs is a co-working space with, um, a, with some retail space. And Auburn Avenue, if, if folks are familiar, um, you know, I think it, it, people know about Auburn Avenue as sort of the the birthplace of the civil rights 
movement, right? Um, mm-hmm. Dr. King's home is two blocks over from us, um, his childhood home. Um, but Auburn Avenue was also um, an avenue where a lot of black wealth thrived, like back, you know, back in the day. And um, after the civil rights era, just like a lot of other cities dealt with this, but um, fell to Auburn Avenue as a whole, um, fell to um, sort of several periods of disinvestment. And so you walk down um, the street now and it's still a lot of boarded up buildings. And so um, when we partnered, we we were really looking for um um, how do we how do we create a like revitalization without displacement strategy? Um, and we worked with a, a mission aligned developer to to do this work. But what we learned, and this is why your question is so important, is what we've learned through this project. It, it was a good learning experience for us. We're still there. We're still operating, um, and we've we've got a great relationship with the with the community and with our tenants. But what we've learned is without that ownership piece, at the end of the day, no matter how mission aligned. Um, a developer or a partner might be, everyone is sort of grappling with the same market dynamics, right? And so it's really, really important to, it's not enough to just have affordable housing or mixed income housing or affordable commercial real estate. Um, We need to think about these solutions and what does that look like in perpetuity and what does it look like to, um, to my point earlier, is to to democratize um, ownership as broadly as possible and governance of it as broadly as possible. So that sort of led us to the next project. And right now we're in the early stages of it. I'm, this is the first time I'm announcing it publicly, but we are under contract on a building. Um, and oh, fantastic. Are- fantastic. Great. Fantastic. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> Go ahead. Tell me about Thank it. You. Under contract. Yes. Under contract, the plan is for um, ground floor retail with office space and then um, about hopefully 15 years, uh, housing units on top. And the the vision for this is to pretty much transition it into the hands of the community um, from day one. And we're using a community investment trust model to do that. And that might be a new term for for some people, but um, folks might be familiar with uh, REITs, real estate investment trust. A lot of people knowingly or unknowingly have that in their portfolios. If you have a 401k or um, sort of any other investment portfolio, there's a there's a chance that you've got some REITs in there. Um, and it, this is sort of just taking that REIT concept and 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 flipping it a little bit and, and applying it at, at a very hyper-local level. Um, and the vision is that low-income community members in the neighborhood that we operate in or we will be operating in get to, to put in anywhere from $10 to $100 a month. So we wanted to keep this very accessible We've intentionally capped the investment at $100 a month. So if you're wealthy and looking to park your money in real estate, this is not the this is not the project for you. Um, but if you you know if you're if you're low income and you have about only $10 to spare a month and you've never had an investment opportunity available to you, this is what it, this has been designed for. Um, and so the vision is as you know when we get community investors at that level, they essentially work the their contribution to the community investment trust um, converts the shares of the property. And so they start owning the property right out the gate, keep building equity, essentially purchasing it back from us at cost. So we we take control of the site, we develop the site, and then we work to turn that back into the hands of the community. And the model that we're, we're borrowing from is something that was tested out in Portland, so it's not brand new. It's, it has been tested out in Portland, and we're working with the, our partner out in Portland 
um, to adapt this to Atlanta and adapt it to um, they were doing it for a commercial property and we're trying to do it for a mixed use property. So think about it as a combination of, of that with like a housing co-op on top. A housing co-op on top and then businesses on the main floor and those businesses could be anything, but are, do you think some of them will be worker co-ops? We would love for some of them to be worker co-ops and actually our programming. Um, the other program I forgot to mention is we've, we've got, an annual community wealth building accelerator that we do. So like most business accelerators, um, it's focused on, you know, helping businesses, small businesses boost their profitability. But we also introduce employee ownership models and other community wealth building strategies um, to our entrepreneurs. And we have a focus on entrepreneurs of color, um, uh, specifically black, indigenous and Latinx entrepreneurs. And so, um, well, I would say entrepreneurs of color overall, but we try to prioritize um, those sort of most um, uh, most affected by the racial wealth gap. And so, yeah, I mean, it would be ideal that, and we would definitely wrap around some of this programming that we already do with the real estate so that even if the businesses that locate right now may not be a co-op, um, that we can move them along the way. And we ourselves have transitioned to become a worker-owned co-op now. So this $25,000 award that you got from NCB and Capital Impact Partners for the Innovation Award, you just got an Innovation Award. So they think that your project is innovative. <laughs> How do you feel about <laughs> receiving that award? Yeah, I mean, we're very grateful. Uh, we're very grateful for the award. We're very grateful for sort of all of the support um, that we have been getting from other partners and from um, our community here. I think, like I mentioned earlier, we've seen with this, you know, with this particular pandemic, other inequities continue to exacerbate and, and get more severe. And so, and, and I mentioned sort of philanthropy and grant sort of being the vehicle to, to seed some alternatives right now, um, alternatives that will get us away from, from the status quo that has that has caused all these problems in the first place. And so awards like this are are so helpful for us to be able to test out these models because they haven't been widely tested, right? At this point, a lot of this is experimenting. While housing co-ops have been around for a while, um, something like a community investment trust is, is still sort of new. Um, and so um, any grant support we get, we're grateful for, and it allows us to, to test out and, and scale the concept. So getting money from... NCB and Capital Impact Partners and other partners like this is very, very helpful, and I get it. But also the other place for, for money would be the government. Uh, have you mm -hmm. looked at HUD, for example, uh, to try to get some money from them or any other departments in the U.S. government? To be honest, we haven't only because of the sheer complexity and time. We've known um, some of our partners have worked on um, – low-income housing, for example, and the complexity of the project um, once they get HUD dollars or other. I mean, I think that's a necessary avenue for sure, and we need more of it. Um, and this, this president is certainly not doing any favors to that. But um, I, I do think we need more of that. At this stage, though, we have not, we have not explored that because there's a certain cost to getting access to some of that capital, and we're not at that scale just yet. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about my definition of socialism. My definition of socialism is the uh, entity, government in this case, will go and tax people, all people, and then they take those tax dollars and they 
they distribute them to get mm-hmm. done whatever needs to be done. And that's my definition of socialism. At least that's one part of socialism. So that's why when we have public schools or police departments or the Army and the Navy and all of those folks is taking tax dollars and paying for these social programs. Is that a good, pretty good definition? Is that what you think, too? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way to explain it. Um, and it's also about being able to sort of control the means of production and, and again, democratize the means of production, right? So I think more broadly, and that's why I keep saying the democratization of assets is, is important. And I hate to, at least now in this economy, I think I, I just, I talk about it because it makes sense, but because um, sometimes when you hear when people hear the word socialism, they they automatically shut down, and it's it's silly to me. Um, but we we deal with those people every day, um, and mm-hmm. so we just talk about it as um, something that makes sense. But yeah, it absolutely is about where the means of production and, and distribution are are sort of owned more broadly, um, so we can work towards broad based prosperity as opposed to sort of the singular and individual prosperity. So. I get that production distribution, but I want to go back to this tax piece a minute because mm-hmm. what, I, what I see happening in America is that every, everybody's taxed, okay, at different rates. Mm-hmm. And it used to be in the 50s and 60s, those tax dollars uh, were put into, for instance, HUD for co-op. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of money put in it for co-ops and co-ops affordable housing co-ops function extremely well. They outperform mm-hmm. apartment buildings in every area you can think of. But exactly. then President Reagan stopped that money from going into HUD and HUD stopped taking the tax dollars and put it in the hands of everyday people. You call it democratizing them, put it in the hands of everyday people through affordable housing co-ops and they gave it to rich people to do apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it's still it's socialism now for rich as opposed to socialism Absolutely. for everybody, and that's the and point that's, that's, is they they talk about socialism and socialism yeah. bad, but they are they're using socialism to get the rich to be more and more and more powerful and concentrated wealth and all of the stuff you're talking about. Oh, absolutely, okay. absolutely. They talk about handouts, and then you know we saw what happened in the in the 2008 crisis. Like, who got the handouts? Who got the bailouts? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so they got the bailouts, and then they got them property. Yep. Okay. Um, no, oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. It's so it's it's interesting, and I've got this on this program talking to different people. Rebecca Henderson's book, Reimagining Capitalism, was one of them. But J. Philip Thompson, the deputy mayor of New York, another person. There's a lot of people that's dealing with this right now. But we got to take our final break, and we'll be back to talk more about this. And I want to get your view on these pandemics a little bit more too. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. I'm having a wonderful conversation with Ms. Nikishka Iyengar, who's the founder and CEO of the Guild in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, who's working to create an economy that works for everybody including the natural world. Got it. Nikishka. Okay, so we talked about the project that you're working on doing. You talked about the grant that you received from NCB and Capital Impact Partners. 
we were talking about socialism, and I just I got I need to make two more points, and I give it back to you. But <laughs> in the socialism, I said it's do the taxes, get the money in, and then distribute those taxes. And you would think it'd be for for the people, but now it looks like, particularly with this tax breaks that that Trump and mm -hmm. them passed, the Republican Senate passed, they mm -hmm. end up helping the rich. All the money just keeps flowing to the rich. They get all of these policies. So the point I want to make to everybody out there is you've got to get out and vote. The power that we have is in the vote. So you got to get people out. They call them progressive people. And progressive just means to me is that people, politicians, and everybody that wants to do things that's for the benefit of the masses of people, everyday people, these marginalized communities, women. So get out and vote. Get everybody you know to get out and vote. Okay, that's my main point I keep wanting to push here is that folks have to get out and vote so they'll get people in place that'll create policies that'll distribute that tax dollars back to the people so Nikishka can go to HUD and with <laughs> make it easier to get a loan and process a loan to create an affordable affordable housing for folks co-ops particularly because it puts the power back in and creates the wealth back in to people in the hands of everyday people. Love what you're doing. Love what, you can, what you're doing. How do people reach you if they either have donations or want to get more information about what you're doing? How do, how do they reach out to you? Yeah, they can go to our website. It's um, www.theguild.community. So not .com, but .community. They can find us on Instagram. We're at Guild Community. And yeah, we've, we've got a form. Uh, they can reach out. They can, there's an email address on the website that they can reach out to. Yeah. Say that one more time. www.theguild.community. Okay. Theguild.community. Yep. And okay. not .com. And I think people usually go to theguild.com and, and I don't think, um, I think that takes you somewhere else. But yeah, we're the guild.community. Well, I would like to encourage you, since you're doing co-ops in housing and in businesses, uh, looking for the different types of co-ops, to make it the guild.coop. Yeah, we need to. Yeah, yeah. We, um, I need to look to see if that domain is available, but we have been actually looking into that since we're transitioning now. Yeah, they, they make it they make it easy to do now. It's a lot easier to get that mm -hmm, done. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what other projects do you have coming? The CIT, the Community Investment Trust that I shared is sort of is the big one and like the 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 big bold vision is to fundamentally just change how real estate is done. Um, you know, if you ask me in an ideal world that we would not have housing as a commodity. Housing would be a right for everybody, and it wouldn't be something that is used to make a profit. But while we're while we're sort of transitioning to whatever this next economy will hopefully look like, you know, like I said, getting the the ownership and governance and stewardship in the hands of as many people as possible is something we're focused on. So, the community investment trust is, you know, over the next two years, we would have learned a lot, and from there, hope to scale this concept so that every neighborhood can have assets that are broadly owned by all of the residents in the neighborhood. 
decisions around those assets can be made by collectively by all of the residents in the community versus by, you know, the developer or the state. Um, so that's, that's, that's the broad vision. Um, and we're, we're starting out with one project um, and we'll scale from there. So you've just talked about the principles of co-ops and the first one is volunteer and open membership is open to everybody regardless of race or gender or politics or religion democratic member control one member one vote not based on how much money you have member economic mm -hmm. participation you said you're trying to keep it low for people to come to get in so that you have mm -hmm. to pay something in but in and when there's a profit those members decide how that profit is given up and it could be dividends back to them they have to have autonomy and independence. That's the fourth principle, where they have control of the business. They own and control it. And the fifth one is what the programs I've heard we haven't talked a lot about is education, training, and information. You have to get that training so you know how to mm -hmm. make decisions, how to govern. You know when there's conflict, because when there's two or more, there's going to be conflict. So there's going to be conflict. How do you resolve conflict and keep moving it? And the sixth one is cooperation among co-ops, that different co-ops pretend to work together. And you're building that ecosystem right on into your communities and affordable housing. And it's concern for the community that's in the DNA of co-op. You don't have to go to the 500 and try to figure out what they're doing. The co-op is already there in concern for the community. If it's a co-op and operating like a co-op. So you've just outlined the principles of cooperation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And just another, the, the, the point about the sharing of profit as dividends, that's absolutely one part of this model. But the other part that I didn't really touch on is the also like the share price appreciation that the members will feel when, so for example, the, the properties that we're looking at to do these, um, these pilot projects and are in neighborhoods that are, that haven't fully gentrified, but they have started gentrifying. Right. And so when property values go up in these neighborhoods, usually that that ends up being a bad signal for legacy residents, low income residents, because it means that they will probably be displaced, unfortunately. So if know, for no other reason, because of property taxes, if exactly, for no other reason, for nothing yes. else. Yeah. But there's also other sinister ways that when mm -hmm. sort of more affluent white residents move in, they, you know, they, they, yeah, we know we know there's like a whole host of sort of a cascading effect of you know, whether it's code issues or over-policing in these neighborhoods, all of it, all of it sort of um, works collectively to um, to displace and, and harm Black bodies and Black communities. So, so the piece here is about collective ownership of real estate. Not only will that allow for broad redistribution of, of net profits, but also when the neighborhood does start gentrifying or gentrifies more, I should say, and property values go up, that's actually now a wealth building mechanism mm -hmm. for the people that own these shares versus a signal that they might be displaced. Right. Um, so, so that's, the, that I mean, this is at a small scale, but once we scale the concept, that's hopefully the end result is that people can build wealth when their neighborhoods do well and amenities that they have been asking for, for decades um, that are now being made available because of more white affluent residents moving in they actually get to stay and benefit from all of that, too. So that's, that's sort of the, the long-term vision. Well, another quick idea across my head was, because we've already gone through this in D.C. I mean, it's huge. Right. Um, but working with the city government to see as they get some of that land in their portfolio because people haven't paid their taxes or they abandoned it when, when the, flight, the plight got really bad, that some of that you can pick up 
the folks in the neighborhood can pick that up at very reasonable, if not low price, $100 exactly. you can buy a piece of property with and then go ahead and develop that with folks. All right. It looks like you can have a, a great, a great, great future in, in Atlanta and maybe scale this through the U.S. and the world because the world needs it. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon, this capitalism. It's yeah. a world phenomenon, this, this gap. What do you see in your 30 years on this earth? <laughs> what do you see this new economy? You mentioned a new economy because I don't want to go back to this old norm. Okay, I, I don't yeah. want that. So, how, what do you see this new economy maybe looking like? Yeah, I mean, I think the new economy or the next economy or the solidarity economy, there's all sort of the terms that folks use, is that where, in my mind, it's where people that are current, that are marginalized by a current system get to not just fully participate and benefit from, but get to to own, uh, get to own their their own futures, and and communities can self govern. There's a path to self determination. There's resilience. Um, that every time there is a crisis, whether it's COVID nineteen or a hurricane or no matter what, that communities aren't uh, that that can build back together um, and build back. Not to take. Biden's slogan, but build back better mm-hmm. together. And so I think, yeah, the next economy is where there's there's broad prosperity across the board um, and people that are currently marginalized are front and center and get to benefit from all of it. So what do people have to do that's out there right now? Got a minute to tell them. What do you have to do? Fundamentally, well, if there's only one thing you can do, just rethink ownership rethink our relationship to ownership, whether it's real estate or businesses or what have you. We need to fundamentally move away from this idea of ownership and individualism um, to more, you know, um, community-based outlooks and stewardship rather than ownership. So that's sort of the broad, um, if there's only one thing you can do. Yeah, I was saying that's one minute to do it, and you did it great in that minute. Everybody out there, please look to see how you can get three or four of your friends together to start a business cooperatively or own some property and reach out to the guild, Nikisha and her group for any support that she might be able to give you or you all can help do things together. Thank you, everybody out there. Please have a great week and live cooperatively. Your news talk station, 